You can open up your copy of God's Word to John 16. How do we convince people of the truth of the Bible? How do we convince people to, to believe in Jesus, to place their faith in Him and in Him alone? Those of you who have uh, pled with friends, neighbors, or co-workers, family members, know sometimes that you feel helpless even as you share the gospel with them, right? Uh, because you, you so desperately want them to, to see the truth and to, to look to Christ in faith. And it's amazing to, to read through the book of Acts. You see all the different words that are used to, to describe uh, what the apostles uh, do uh, concerning the gospel, that they, they teach the gospel, they, they proclaim the gospel, uh, they explain it, they, they reason from uh, the scriptures. The, the apostle Paul goes and he, he debates uh, and, and points to the scriptures regularly, he goes into the, the synagogues and, and shows them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we can do all of those things, but there's something more that needs to, to happen for someone to, to trust in Christ, to look to Him in faith. There's something supernatural that is beyond our abilities that needs to take happen. That's in the hands of God. The, the Spirit of God has to impart new life. That was Jesus' words to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. He says to this teacher in Israel, the teacher in Israel, He says, you must be born again. You must be born from above, uh, there must be a supernatural event, and I feel like this this supernatural event is uh, is most evident in the the conversion of one of the apostles, the, the apostle Paul. And if we were to to kind of go throughout the the scriptures, we could piece together Paul's autobiography from what he he tells us over uh, multiple New Testament books. In in Philippians chapter three. Uh, he describes how he was raised. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Uh, later on, when he was giving his own testimony before uh, rulers uh, there in Caesarea, uh, in Acts chapter 22, he says, I am a Jew born in, in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, not having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Forgive me, he's in Jerusalem when he's speaking there. But he says he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most uh, preeminent rabbis during that time, uh, one who's also mentioned in, earlier in the book of Acts. So Paul grew up and then was, was trained up uh, as a, a Pharisee, uh, and he was tr uh, very, very zealous for God uh, and for uh, obedience to the Old uh, Testament laws and the traditions of the Pharisees. Now, in Acts chapter 8, uh, after the, the martyrdom, the, the murder of uh, the, the deacon Stephen, we have this. It says, Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he was delivering them into prison. So this is, this is quite the, the picture. 
Uh, that would, that, that would uh, very quickly and rapidly make the, uh, the, the local Christian news network. Right? Word would go out that this Pharisee named Saul, is, if he comes and knocks on your door, it is not good. Right? You're going to be taken away to jail and probably to death. Acts chapter 9 uh, it says in verse 1, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, it, it, quite the picture there, right? He's, he's breathing this out. He's like a, a fire-breathing persecution dragon going after all of the disciples, all those who, who claim to follow Christ. Saul is, is coming after them. But, but then in that same chapter, as he's on his way, he's got a letter from the high priest to go to Damascus and to drag people out of that city and bring, and bring them back to Jerusalem if they're following after Christ. His letters from the high priest, and he's on his way to uh, Damascus uh, when he's, he's struck and he hears a, a voice and he's blinded. And Jesus speaks to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Not just his people, but he says, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul says, well, who are you? And Jesus announces himself and he says to, to go into the city and he's going to meet another disciple there or a disciple there since Paul, uh, Saul is not uh, a believer at this point in time. Uh, and he's struck with blindness. He's taken into the city and Ananias is told, hey, go and, and share the gospel. Go speak to Saul and Ananias says, Lord, are you sure? I've heard about this guy. I don't particularly want to go and speak with him right now. But the Lord says, no, he, he is called and you must tell him how much he must suffer on my behalf to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, at that point in time, uh, Ananias goes and, and instructs Saul and calls him to repentance. Uh, and it says that something like scales fell from his eyes and suddenly Saul believes Everything that he was previously against, he now wholeheartedly embraces. And he's baptized, and then he goes in and he begins to preach. And he begins to, to, to teach, and the Lord was, was going to use him now in a very, very profound way. That This is what must take place in a human heart. There's never going to be enough evidence to transform a human heart never going to uh, be evidence that moves a human heart from a place of rejecting God to a place of r repentance uh, and a softness before God. The heart is always willing to suppress the truth, no matter how much truth is thrown at it. And ultimately, uh, unbelief is not an intellectual issue, it's a spiritual one. Paul wasn't converted through evidence. Uh, he was literally apprehended by God. He's walking and God says, nope, I'm going to, I'm going to, draw you to myself i'm going to, to save you and the spirit worked upon his heart to bring him to faith and obedience to christ and this is this is the holy spirit at work there in the book of acts we see that the spirit on display in acts and here what we're studying right now in john we're seeing we are seeing the promise of the spirit jesus announcing to the disciples what the spirit is going to do when the spirit comes now, and especially in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, there, there are multiple promises of what the Spirit would do when he came upon them after Jesus departed. 
As we're here in, in John 16 this, this morning, we're, we're coming to the final moments that Jesus has with uh, his 11 faithful disciples. Judas uh, has gone and is seeking to betray uh, Jesus as they speak right now. Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room and, and uh, where Jesus washed their feet and they ate the Passover meal. And at the end of chapter 14, they departed from that upper room, probably because Judas was going to bring the, the temple guard and the Romans there. Uh, and so they begin to, to walk and they're making their way through the city over to the Mount of Olives on the east side of the, uh, just outside of the, the city. And as Jesus walks with his disciples, he is doing what he always did with them. So frequently, uh, what discipleship looked like with Jesus is he's walking along and you're walking with him and he's going to be instructing. Uh, and he's pointing things out and he's giving lessons. He's teaching and preparing his disciples all the time. And right now, as he walks with them, he's speaking with them about his departure. And he's uh, seeking to prepare them for him uh, being no longer present with them. And they're greatly distraught. And he's going to speak often about his departure. And what he has in mind, first and foremost, when he speaks about his departure, he's speaking about his death. That in just a, a matter of maybe an hour or less, he's going to be ar- arrested, uh, taken away, uh, a, a midnight trial, which is completely illegal, and then taken over in the, the early morning hours to Pontius Pilate. And he's going to be condemned to death, even though they can find nothing uh, worthy of condemnation in him going to be condemned to death and he's going to be crucified the next day so jesus when he speaks about his departure he's he's talking about what he came to do this is the the mission that god the father sent him uh, to fulfill on the earth god the father sent god the son to live a perfect life to die a sacrificial death and to rise again on the third day to, to to pay the penalty for sins and to redeem humanity all those who look to christ in faith will be rescued reconciled and renewed So when Jesus speaks about his departure from his disciples, he is speaking about his death, but also about his ascension into heaven. That Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is going to appear to the disciples. He's going to be with them for 40 days and give them the ultimate classroom lesson on the kingdom of God and the beginning part of Acts chapter 1. And then if you turn over with me to Acts chapter 1, look at verses 9 through 11. After the resurrected Christ is there with the disciples, verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So the the risen Christ ascends uh, to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. This is seen in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, but he, having offered uh, one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so once Jesus departs, then he's able to, to send the Spirit the third member of the Trinity, to be with the disciples. And that's what's going to be on display. That's what he's going to be teaching and instructing and preparing them for here in John 16. If you look with me, beginning in verse 5 of that chapter. But now I am going to him who sent me. 
And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And all things that the the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So Jesus is giving them direction and he's, he's telling them of what is going to come to pass. And when the Spirit comes, what he's going to do. But, but as we look at this passage, as, uh, as we read it, we understand that what Jesus' words to the disciples, it's predicting the future at that point in time. But for us, we're looking backwards. We're looking into the past to, to see that what Jesus spoke to them has been affirmed. Uh, and also, uh, what Jesus spoke to them has a continuing and enduring significance. That what Jesus is speaking about here with the, with the coming of the Spirit is going to transform uh, the world uh, as they knew it. Things were going to be altogether different once the Spirit came. That's why this is such a significant uh, message that he's speaking to them. And what we're going to, to see uh, as we study these passages uh, are, are two certainties about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, that are going to, to help us uh, grasp uh, why his coming is, uh, is a world changer, why his coming is so significant. It's going to be two two certainties. The first one is seen in verses 5 through 7. We see that the the Spirit coming is better than Jesus staying. This was very difficult for for the disciples to wrap their their hearts and minds uh, around because they were so connected to Jesus. They had walked with him for for three years. And now, uh, verse 5, he says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. Uh, And none of you asks me, where you're going. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm departed and none of you have asked. But you may kind of scratch your head and say, but wait a second. I really thought back in chapter 13, in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So Jesus says here, no one is asking, but Peter actually asked that exact question. But I don't think Peter really uh, is concerned about the answer there. Sort of like when a when a child asks when the, when when a young child sees dad going out the door and the and the child says dad where are you going? They really don't want a full explanation of where the father is going. They're just they're expressing dismay. Really, if I could reword it in a, the the mind of the child, father, what nerve you have to abandon me, right? Like how how can you leave? They're expressing dismay, and that's really what what peter is is expressing there in chapter 13 he's not really asking and wanting to know 
He's just dismayed that Jesus is leaving. You've got some nerve. And that's more the emphasis of what Peter is saying in, in chapter uh, 13. So Jesus is saying, none of you are really concerned about uh, and asking truly, where are you going? And verse 6 says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I appreciate how one biblical scholar paraphrased this. He says, grief has caused you to think as you do. That, that the disciples are just so overwhelmed at hearing that Jesus is leaving them. Uh, and they're so at a loss for what they're going to, to do that they aren't thinking clearly. And the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they, they hadn't pieced everything together. All of the implications of that, that, that the Messiah that they had been waiting for and that they were convinced Jesus was the Messiah. But uh, the Messiah must also be uh, the glorified king. That was the only thing that they were certain of. But they, they didn't understand that the, the Messiah who was going to be the glorified king would also be the suffering servant and the resurrected Lord. And that he had to, to live and die and then rise again to fulfill all that God had prepared for him to do. In verse 7, Jesus says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now those are probably hard words to hear. Right? He's saying this is, it is better, it is beneficial that, that I would leave you and go away. That, that word for the, the advantage, that same word is used uh, by Caiaphas back in chapter 11, verse 50. If you, if you turn back there, evidence that God is able to use uh, broken clocks to tell the correct time. If you look at the beginning of verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better, and there's our word, it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So as Caiaphas says this, he's saying we need to, uh, to give Jesus up to the Romans, otherwise he's going to lead a rebellion against the Romans and we're all going to suffer and perish. Uh, but the reality is that Jesus is going to be sacrificed to satisfy the wrath of God, not the, the anger of the, the Romans. But he gives forth that idea that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. And that, that same word is used later on in chapter 18, citing that passage. And uh, it's used elsewhere in the scriptures. One example would be 1 Corinthians 6:12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. There's our word. So Jesus is, is saying it is, it is better. It is going to be more profitable uh, for the disciples if Jesus goes than if he stays. And that would be an absolute shock to them. And Jesus, uh, in that verse 7, he also continues. He says, for if I do not go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So if Jesus continues, the advocate won't come. But if Jesus goes... But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus' presence was only temporary, but he was going to, to send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be with them. And this is, this is so significant, because if you think back to what I mentioned earlier about that, that child being dismayed when, it, when a, a father leaves, what would a, what would a kind and loving father do in that moment where the child is just in dismay? And dads, I'm sure you've, you've experienced this. When, when your kid is just an infant, 
you probably just leave, right? They're not going to understand if you go and talk. You may go kiss them on the head, but you can't speak words to them that are going to convince them of the importance of you uh, going. I got to feed the family. Do you like food, kid? Like, you, you know, you have to, you, they don't understand that. But as, uh, with an older child who's dismayed at a father's departure, what would a loving father do? He, he would come alongside them and, and, and tell them, hey, I want to be here with you and I love you and I care for you. But it's also important that I go. Uh, and, and I need to go. Uh, and, and that's what Jesus is, is doing for uh, the disciples here. So I, I, I love you. I care for you. I've walked with you this whole time. But now it, it's better for me to depart. That way I can send the, the Spirit to be with you. But, but again, we have to kind of wrestle with this, right? And, and is it really better for Jesus to go? How is it better for Jesus to depart? This is where it's, it's important to, to think through things theologically here and to understand how, how each member of the Trinity uh, plays a part in our salvation. God the Father uh, is the architect of our salvation. He's the one who has planned it from eternity past uh, and is carrying out his plan. Part of his plan was to send his son, we've talked about. And so God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the one who accomplishes Salvation. He comes to the earth uh, and his life, death and resurrection uh, are what accomplishes salvation. Uh, And then the spirit is the one who applies what Jesus accomplished uh, into the hearts and minds and lives of those who trust in him. Uh, If you turn over with me to Ephesians chapter one, we we see all uh, all of this at at work. We see that the triune God uh, and how each one of them plays a part in uh, the salvation that we have experienced. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And, and as we read through verse 14, notice how each member of the Trinity comes into play here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And so this is that, that architect. This is the, the overall plan of salvation. And so in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ uh, to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. Speaking of Christ in him, we have redemption. This is our uh, redemption being accomplished. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the end that we who have who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here's the application of our redemption. Who is uh, the Holy Spirit who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. 
See, the Holy Spirit is that, that seal, that guarantee of our salvation given to us as a pledge that will uh, remain upon us uh, all who have believed in Christ. That the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and then permanently indwells us uh, as believers. So that question of how does what Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago, how does uh, what he accomplished get brought down to us? The answer is the, the Holy Spirit. So think about that. If, if the Spirit is the one who applies salvation and what Jesus accomplishes, if the Spirit doesn't come, we have no salvation. And Jesus is departing to go to his death. He has to go and accomplish salvation and then ascend to the right hand of God the Father and then send forth uh, the Spirit to apply redemption to his people. And the sending of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about here is really a, a demonstration of Christ's victory on the cross. And it's a demonstration uh, that, that the Father's wrath has been satisfied. Uh, the resurrected Christ and the sending of the, the Spirit show that. that. That's why the Spirit coming is better than Jesus staying. Because Jesus must depart to accomplish our salvation and then send the Spirit to apply it. And that is the first certainty of the Spirit's coming. But what about the, the second certainty? Well, we see this in, in verses 8 through 11. And this second certainty is that the coming Spirit will convict the world. Verse 8, Jesus says, And he, speaking of the Advocate, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus begins to, to lay out what the Spirit is going to do when he comes into the world. What will the Spirit do? He will convict. And this, this word here has the idea of examining carefully or scrutinizing. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's also translated as uh, exposing or bringing something to light. But, but usually when it is in, used in connection with sin, the emphasis is upon uh, bringing conviction. So bringing a person to the point where they recognize uh, wrongdoing. Uh, that, that is the, the ministry of the Spirit in the world. Now uh, that is who he will convict. So what will the Spirit do? He will convict uh, and he's going to convict the world. And this is the only passage in the New Testament that describes the Spirit's work really on the hearts of unbelievers. Usually uh, what we have uh, uh, throughout the entire New Testament is how the Spirit is at work in, in the hearts and minds of believers to shape us and to conform us into the image of, of Christ, to make us more and more like our Savior. Now, but this is telling us about what the Spirit does uh, really before we believe uh, and upon all of those who have not believed. Now, the Spirit is at work uh, to impress upon and to convict, to bring recognition of wrongdoing. And then Jesus lists three particular areas that the Spirit is going to, to bring a recognition uh, or open their eyes concerning, Right? is concerning sin, referring to any departure from God's standard, concerning righteousness, referring to a quality or, or characteristic of, of upright behavior, and then thirdly, concerning judgment, that, that legal process. And he lists those three off at the, the end of verse 8, but then in verses 9, 10, and 11, he's going to, to explain more in depth why the Spirit convicts on those three areas in particular. So what we see in 9, 10, and 11, concerning sin, because 
they do not believe in me. All three of these are going to be connected to the the person of Christ. That's uh, the spirit convicts concerning uh, our view and understanding of Jesus. And and the most important thing that all of those in the, the world are lacking is faith in Christ. Their most significant sin uh, is unbelief. And this part of the, the Spirit's work and His ministry is to impress upon the hearts of uh, those in the world, including uh, Jews, including Gentiles, anybody who is not uh, looking to Christ in faith. The Spirit works upon them in this way, convicting them and showing them the, the need to look to Christ. D.A. Carson puts it this way, This convicting work of the Spirit is therefore gracious, It is designed to bring men and women of the world to recognize their need and so turn to Jesus and thus stop being the world. So we we, we see this on display immediately uh, when the Spirit is is sent in Acts chapter 2. Spirit comes upon the the disciples in the upper room uh, and then Peter goes out and and preaches in, in the temple. And at the end of his sermon... This is what takes place, Acts 2, verses 36 and 37. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He doesn't pull any punches there. He speaks the truth, and he's speaking to this crowd, and he says, you crucified the Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for, you killed. And then listen to their response in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? How should we respond? And they say, repent and be baptized. Look to Christ in faith. What we see here is uh, the importance of faith in Christ. Unbelief is the only sin that will ultimately condemn a person. Every other sin can be forgiven in Christ. But if you reject Jesus... There is no hope of salvation. He, he's the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. So if you, if you turn away from the only means of salvation, there is no hope. And, and the Spirit impresses upon people's hearts and minds and, and lives the necessity of looking to Jesus and trusting in Him and Him alone. Jesus affirmed this so many times in, in His ministry. When His ministry began, what was His message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Earlier in John's gospel, John eight twenty four, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I mean, this, this is the natural trajectory of every single human being. We all go our own way. We don't want to, to submit to God. We don't want to acknowledge him. We, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we're all on a trajectory of rebellion against him. Now, at varying levels, we're not as sinful as we all could be. But we're still in our hearts in rebellion against a holy God who's given us life and breath and everything, who deserves nothing but our praise and adoration. And unless we look to Jesus in faith, we'll die in our sins. That was Jesus' message, and that's also going to be how the, the Spirit works upon the human heart. He's going to convict of concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. In verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. 
While Jesus was here on the earth, he was the perfect witness, the perfect example of what righteousness looked like. He's the exact image and representation of God the Father. And so while Jesus was in the world, everybody present at that point in time could look to Jesus and understand what righteousness looks like. But when we no longer see Jesus, when he goes and departs, what's our understanding of righteousness? We get that through the Spirit's conviction. We understand and are convicted about the righteousness of Christ and our unrighteousness. We begin to see Christ's righteousness is perfect, and my unrighteousness is also, you could say, perfect. It's, it's complete. And the way that I sink in, in my affections, what I desire, what I want, as, as a, a natural human being, a fallen man, we all have those desires that are contrary to God. And it's the Spirit that impresses that upon our hearts and minds and lives. And we recognize the holy life of Christ. This is pictured very uh, powerfully in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when, when Jesus is calling uh, the, the, the first disciples. And, and he, uh, after talking with the, the disciples about where to, to find fish after they've been uh, out all night searching for fish. Uh, and then Jesus says, hey, put, put the net in again. And Peter's like, we, we haven't found a thing. And he says, oh, no, just put it in again. And Peter puts in the net and he, he it brings the net up and it's just overflowing. And Peter understands, wait a second. I've been searching all night for fish. Where did these fish come from? And he concludes, no, this is more than just a man. He comes down and, and, and he falls before Jesus and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, there's a recognition of the righteousness of Christ. And Peter's own unrighteousness. They don't commingle. Something needs to happen for righteousness to be with unrighteousness. And Christ is the standard of righteousness. And the Spirit convicts us. It convinces us of that truth. Right? When we compare ourselves, we love to compare ourselves to people obviously more wicked. Right? We always choose the matchup to put ourselves in a favorable light. But when we hold ourselves up to Christ, we see... Our only option is to do what Peter did, to, to fall down and say, Lord, I am unrighteous and you are righteous. That's the conviction of the Spirit. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The, the imagery there is, is the idea of just horribly dirty menstrual cloths that even the, the, the things that you think are righteous when you bring them to, before god it's it's like I'm, I'm bringing these cloths to you and saying look at look at what i've brought to you god he says no 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 even your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us like a leaf all, all our iniquities like the wind carry us away but when we see our sinfulness before a holy God, when we recognize that He is the righteous one and we are unrighteous, that's the work of the Spirit upon our heart. And when we begin to feel that, what's our natural inclination? When we see that we've sinned, we, we have a tendency to try to suppress. We, we try to, to, to push that away. And then as Romans uh, talks about, you know, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We, we suppress that feeling of guilt and conviction, and then we suppress the fact that we suppressed it.
We don't even want to think about what we're doing. But that's the reality. That's the, the spirit at work in the world. But then he, he brings up a, a third area in which the spirit brings conviction. Verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And the spirit brings conviction. He convinces us that Jesus was victorious at the cross. Because he's speaking about the ruler of the world being judged. And when does that take place? It happens at the cross. Uh, what we've seen already in John's gospel, if you turn back to John 13, 2, that, that Satan is the, is, is the demonic power who is, who is at work seeking to destroy Christ. Uh, 13, 2, and during supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. If you look over the same chapter, verse 27, and, and after the piece of bread, Satan then entered into him, speaking of Judas, and therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. See, Satan is, is working behind the scenes to try to destroy Christ. He's trying to get him murdered to keep him from ascending to the, the messianic throne. But what Satan doesn't fully understand is that by sending Jesus to death on the cross, he's actually sealing his own defeat. Yes, on the cross, Jesus uh, received the wrath of God that we deserved, and he paid the penalty for our sins. But he was also victorious over Satan and all of the demonic forces on the cross. Colossians 2 talks about this. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking of those demonic powers, he made a public display, a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them in him, in the text, but really the him could also be in it. Speaking of the cross. And if Christ is victorious over sin, Satan, and death, he will also be victorious over all of those who do not repent. All of those who reject him, Christ will be victorious over as well. And so uh, the Spirit works and impresses these realities upon our hearts so that we cannot deny them. And, and even in denying them, we have to, to sear our conscience. We have to, to battle against what we know to be true, suppressing the truth. This very, very powerful scene here over the, over the last few chapters. What we've seen uh, as Jesus has talked about the, the, the sending this, this advocate, uh, and that word has a very legal connotation, a, a lawyer who comes alongside it is, is your helper. He's there to, to comfort, to encourage, and to, to defend. Uh, the Holy Spirit has thus far been presented as a, like a defense attorney for believers. And that's a wonderful encouragement, right? Uh, but here... What we see is uh, our defense attorney is also the prosecuting attorney for the world. Uh, but he's not seeking to convince the judge of our guilt. Who is he seeking to convince of our guilt? Us. Uh, he, he's working upon our hearts and showing us our rebellion, our unrighteousness. The, the judgment that we will one day face because of our rejection of Jesus. So thinking through all of this, this is, this is profound. But how exactly does this, does this take place? How does the, the Spirit convict concerning sin, righteousness, and, and judgment? And I would say that the, that the Spirit convicts in tandem with the Word of God. When the Word of God is, is read... 
When the word is read and conviction is felt, that's the spirit's working in our hearts. When the word of God is proclaimed, when it is quoted, when it is applied and unfolded, the spirit brings conviction in tandem with the word. And the truth of God's word assaults the strongholds of our hearts. And so the spirit and the word work together to help us to see clearly and to, to face a, a reality of what am I going to, where am I going to turn? I know that these things are true concerning Christ. Now, what am I going to do? Am I going to suppress them? Am I going to reject? Am I going to harden my heart? Or am I going to repent? Am I going to fall down even as the apostle Peter did and say, Lord, please forgive me. Have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And this this is really significant in a variety of ways. That the Spirit is the one who brings conviction. But most easily and applicable is that if the Spirit is the one who brings conviction, you and I don't have to try to bring conviction. We just get to, to speak the truth. We proclaim what is true, and we leave the results up to God. Now, we don't always do that, right? Especially husbands and wives. We like to, to play the role of the spirit, right? We want to, well, I'll, I'll speak the truth and I'll heap on the guilt. I'll, I'll make them feel the conviction, right? How does that usually respond? Or how, what, what response does that generate? Immediate repentance on the part of your, your spouse? Or is there that hardening, right? Yeah, that, that's what we see. But this, is, this truth is amazing. So what the, what the spirit does in the world, he doesn't stop doing among believers. But it's a both and. The Spirit is going to, to be uh, at work in the hearts and minds of everybody. So we are called to speak the truth in love with boldness, with, with gentleness, with reverence, and just leave the results up to God. But we don't have to, to speak in anger. We need to be faithful ambassadors and allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to convict. And that's an act of faith on our part, right? Because it means I'm going to entrust the Lord to work and to do what he's promised to do. So we've seen two certainties in this passage about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit coming is better than Jesus staying and the coming Spirit will convict the world. And these, these truths really do help us to understand how the Lord has been at work in our lives and how the, the Lord has promised to be at work in, in the world, even as we go forth and as we share the gospel, as we tell others about how Jesus has made an impact upon our hearts and our lives, we know that what's also going to be happening as we speak the word of God to others, the Spirit's going to bring conviction. We don't know how people will respond, but we know that the Spirit is bringing that conviction concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we need to be faithful to go and proclaim, to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, begging, imploring people to be reconciled to God uh, through Christ. It's an amazing testimony of a, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you may be familiar with her story, with her writings. She was uh, an English uh, professor uh, at the University of, of Syracuse, and she was a, a practicing lesbian. Uh, and she was researching uh, a book where she was, that she was going to write on the religious right. And so she's, she's doing this research. And as an English professor, she knows that if I'm going to write this book on the religious right, I should probably read the Bible. 
Right? If, I, if I'm going to understand where they're coming from and what they're saying, I need to, to read it. And so uh, she, she reached out to one of her neighbors who was a, a pastor, uh, and she began to, to read the Bible and, and meet with him and his wife and, and ask questions. And as she sought to, to understand what the Bible teaches over, over the course of, of several years, she said she had uh, 500 meals with that pastor and his wife. And she read the Bible seven times, cover to cover. How many of us have done that? I'll just put that out there. But she says this in, in uh, her book that I would, that I would recommend. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, where she kind of uh, p- lays out her, her testimony in long form. She says, one thing that really struck me about Ken and Floyd, that's the pastor and his wife, about Ken and Floyd's character during these years was how unselfish they were. I observed that they fed and housed and counseled countless people from all walks of life. I saw how wide the door to their home and the door to their heart opened. I remember feeling like I could talk to them about anything. And Ken stressed that he accepted me as a lesbian, but he didn't approve of me as a lesbian. And he held that line firmly, and I appreciated that. It's an important uh, distinction. He wasn't saying, I can't have any contact with you. I don't have, want any relationship with you. But there, there's a, a, a gentleness and a gracious and a firm stance of, hey, the lifestyle that you're leading is sinful. But ultimately, uh, and she says this over and over in the book, that the sin that she needed to repent of was not homosexuality. It was unbelief. That's what she needed to turn from. Uh, And so over the the course of that time, as she read the Bible, as she's meeting with uh, this pastor and his wife and and, and eating and and asking all of these questions, what she comes to realize is that the scriptures are true. Uh, The the spirit brought conviction upon her heart concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. And she says of this with her relationship with with Ken and, and Floyd. She says, this experience taught me a powerful lesson about evangelism. The integrity of our relationship matters more than the boldness of our words. And that plays into everything that is is being said here, right? Because who brings the conviction? The Spirit. We just point to the truth. We speak the truth. We stand firmly on the truth without wavering. And we trust that the the Word is going to work and the Spirit is going to work. What's amazing is that if, if you were a follower of, of Christ, that you probably have a similar testimony. At, at some point in time, somebody pointed you to the Word, and you began to, to read it on your own, or somebody said, hey, come over and we'll read the Word together. Right? And as you began to read, as you began to understand what the Scriptures said, you began to feel convicted. You became convinced that what the Scriptures say about Jesus is true. And, and so you have experienced what is described here. Uh, all of us at one point or another, if you are a follower of Jesus, the, the Spirit has worked upon you in this way uh, and, and brought you to faith. And if you're a follower of, of Jesus, uh, he's continuing to work in you and upon you, and he wants to use you in the same way. Because now as a follower of Jesus, you are called to go out and tell others about Christ. Uh, to trusting that as you go and as you tell others that the Spirit's going to work. Uh, and the Spirit brings conviction through the Word of God. And we can add another little phrase there. We've already said He works through the Word of God, but you can add also through the people of God. 
Uh, And as we put the gospel on display with our words and our lives, people will respond. D.A. Carson puts it this way, Undoubtedly, this kind of conviction is driven home to the world primarily through Jesus' followers, who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, live their lives in such growing conformity to Christ that the same impact on the world is observed as when Jesus himself lived out his life before the world. This is the calling that we have as believers to go out, to continue to proclaim the gospel, continue to be faithful, even though the world is hostile toward us, right? That's what we've seen earlier in this section on how we interact with the world. The world is going to hate us because it first hated Jesus. They crucified Jesus. They're going to have that animosity toward us as well. But we are faithful to proclaim, faithful to reason, speak the truth firmly and unflinchingly, and we leave the results up to God, trusting that the Lord or the Spirit will work uh, upon human hearts. We need to be faithful to do that. And that's what we're called to do as believers. But if you're here this morning and, and you feel... You're kind of in that zone where Rosaria Butterfield was, where I'm not convinced of what the scriptures say. But I want to know more. I want to learn what the Bible teaches. And I'm beginning to feel a conviction concerning who Jesus is and what he is commanding and what the Bible is saying. If you're here this morning and that fits you, we would love to talk with you. Say, come, come talk with me. I'll be in the back after the service. Talk with whoever invited you today. Talk with your growth group leader if you've been here. Uh, but, but speak with somebody about your concerns. Don't suppress the conviction and then suppress the f- fact that you've suppressed. Don't harden your heart in that way. But turn to the Lord in, in prayer and in response to the Spirit's conviction upon your heart and upon your life. Amen? Let's pray.